from the red and black this is the front page today is monday december 14th in this week's episode reporter henry queen talks with hattie thomas whitehead about linentown a historically black community that was destroyed by uga in the 1960s to make space for cresswell russell and brumby halls in the 1960s uga and the city of athens acquired the homes of black residents living along a neighborhood near Baxter Street. The neighborhood was called Linentown, and the residents received a small monetary compensation for their homes. Now, almost 60 years later, those residents are calling for recognition and redress. One of those residents is Hattie Thomas Whitehead. Before the coronavirus pandemic, Thomas Whitehead gave speeches and tours of what used to be Linentown. She was just 14 when UGA acquired her home. I was born and raised in Leonardtown. I was born um, in July 17th, 1948. So Leonardtown is what I knew and it um, helped me develop all my skills that I needed to survive and understand what life was all about for the first 14 years of my life. Thomas Whitehead began her life in a three room house. Living alongside her were her parents, three brothers and three sisters. They were forced to move to another part of Leonardtown at one point due to the initial stages of UGA's expansion. At the time, they weren't aware why they had to move. We were told by a renter, which name was Doolittle, Miss Doolittle, that uh, we had to move because the property was being sold. So I remember that, and I remember my parents being really upset over the fact that we had to move because it was seven children. It was seven of us. And my great-grandmother lived next door. My grandmother lived in the back of us, and my aunt lived across the street. My daddy employed men from the neighborhood, within the neighborhood, who had all the skills to build a house. So the men built us a house in the neighborhood. So we moved from 439 to 141 Peabody. But when we moved on Peabody, we had three bedrooms, which was like, okay. <laughs> that was a great deal of difference come from what we had in just a three-room house. And it gave us a lot of more space Black families began to settle on Peabody Street and Linden Row around 1900. By 1960, about 50 families lived in the 20-acre area near the edge of UGA's campus. It was a largely poor but happy community. The families were actually on the precipice of a generational wealth. 66% of the residents were property owners, and a majority of families had at least one full-time job. We had plumbers, we had electricians, we had uh, carpenters. And we had people that were very handy. So the community had to be self-sustaining because we couldn't call people into the community from the telephones. That couldn't happen. And plus, our families had in the community were on meager wages, so they didn't have the wherewithal to pay anyway. And sometimes they paid people a few dollars, and sometimes the community knew what the situation was with some of the families, and they did not even ask for any money. They just threw up their hand and said, that's okay, and, and left. Linentown was a place where the children of the community could play outside until the streetlights came on. All of us gathered and played, and we had games like jump rope, and we played jump rope and marbles and jackstone. We played what, what we could play, and we felt secure and safe playing where we could play. We had a creek at, off of Cloverhurst. We went down there and played, but we were always playing somewhere in the neighborhood. The community members tried keeping tight-knit to themselves because the outside world discriminated against them and judged them. The overwhelmingly white UGA students would throw water bottles at the Linentown children and call them names. Football games, Thomas Whitehead said, induced a special type of anxiety. When there were football games, 
And since we were so close to campus, people would pull up in front of our yards, driveway, it, it didn't care. And they would park and they would get out and lock the door and walk away. It didn't matter if they were blocking the driveway or what. And then our parents would say, y'all watch that car and make sure nothing happened to it because they didn't want any trouble. The community's trouble with UGA went far beyond football games. The university in the city of Athens began acquiring the residents' homes in the early 1960s. They used eminent domain laws, which allow a government to acquire private property for public use with compensation. Thomas Whitehead said the residents had zero leverage in how much money they received. There was no negotiations at all. You got to remember that all the community um, was condemned. The 22 acres were, was condemned. So there was no negotiations. And that was the problem with the homeowners because they did not know what they were going to get for their homes, what money they was going to get, when they were going to get it, who, who, what was the decision, the factors. It was none of that. Jerry Shannon is a geography professor at UGA. He taught a class in spring 2020 dedicated in part to researching Leonardtown. One of his students analyzed compensation for property owners affected by the project that led to Leonardtown's removal. Controlling for the size of the home, he determined that African-American homeowners were paid about $3,000 less than their white counterparts for similar parcels of land. UGA wanted to expand because of its increasing enrollment. From 1960 to 1969, the student population increased from about 7,500 to over 22,000 as baby boomers started flocking to college. UGA was far from the only university using eminent domain laws to take people's homes. The University of Chicago displaced more than 4,000 families, 58% of which were people of color. Thomas Whitehead didn't know any of those facts when her family was told to move, but she will never forget her mom's reaction. It was heartbreaking. It's the first time I had ever seen my mom cry like that because it was hurtful to her because she didn't know where, where we were going to go, nor that my father, but my mom was impacted the most. And to see her sitting there and crying for us not to be able to help her because there's nothing that we could do to, to help her out and to console her. So only thing we could do is hurt ourselves with her. We had to sit there, look at her, cry, and hurt within. And, and some of us just cried and the others just swallowed it and walked away. Thomas Whitehead was involved with civil rights from a young age. The destruction of her home inspired her even more. She protested in downtown Athens frequently, which sometimes led to jail time. When she participated in demonstrations, the bus usually dropped her off near First Presbyterian Church. She and her peers walked down Lumpkin Street in downtown Athens before turning left on Clayton Street. My heart will always increased because I was holding the sign and I was just terrified of the names and the faces and the spitting that was going to take place once we turned that corner. After graduating from Bernie Harris High School in 1966, Thomas Whitehead started her career in corporate America. She earned several promotions and established procedures promoting diversity during her 27 years on the job. She was one of only a few black employees at her company. I was a black woman in management and we didn't have that many black employees. So it was tough. And I had to outperform individuals that worked with me as well. Uh, some of the individuals had maybe two or three degrees from colleges and, and I, I didn't have a degree. So I had to outthink people and outwork out them, outperform through people. And that's one thing I was able to do. After completing her working life, Thomas Whitehead resumed her activism. 
In 2011, she started a scholarship for Athens-Clark County students who had overcome obstacles and planned on going to college. One day in 2019, she met up with Joseph Carter, an employee for UGA Libraries. After researching Lindentown, Carter presented Thomas Whitehead with a survey of her old neighborhood. And once I saw that survey and started reading it, that, that was it. It brought tears to my eyes. It brought negative memories to my mind that had been blocked out. But once I saw that, I knew that I had to get involved because I knew everything had been done was wrong. And it was my responsibility to try to get Athens and UGA to understand that they had a responsibility to bring some type of justice to what was done wrong then. Carter, Thomas Whitehead, and other former residents formed the Linentown Project. The initiative raised awareness and called for athens Clark County commissioners to publicly acknowledge the harm the city had done in working with UGA to destroy the community. Our parents didn't have a chance because the city with UGA and with the senators that the president of UGA was writing, which was Russell, to get involved, they, they didn't have a chance. They have nobody on their sides. They didn't have a chance. The Linentown Project wants monetary compensation for former residents and a community center dedicated to slavery and race. It also would like a wall of recognition to be constructed, recognizing the lives of the community's residents. Currently, there is only one plaque near what used to be Linentown. It recognizes the Union Baptist Institute, a place I visited recently. Well, I've made my way to Baxter Street, to a hill I know some UGA freshmen climb every day to get to Brumby Hall. Although when they made that climb, I'm not sure they ever see this plaque that I'm looking at right now. And I don't blame them for that. There's tall bushes practically covering the whole thing. It's next to a raw iron fence and across the street from the Bulldog Urgent Care. It honors the Union Baptist Institute, where children of the Linentown community could come learn and pray and sing. It is the only landmark that recognizes a part of Linentown's history. Part of it reads, Here, black youth were taught college preparatory courses in English, Greek, Latin, French, history, mathematics, public speaking, agriculture, sewing, cooking, music, and printing. In 1924, the school was consolidated with three other institutions to become the Union Baptist Institute. The institute was dissolved and the building demolished in 1956, following desegregation and consolidation of the local public school system. And that was The Front Page. The Front Page is a production of the Red and Black Publishing Company. This episode was co-produced by Henry Queen and Andrew Hubbard. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you listen next time.